Welcome to the 77th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about continuous integration and continuous deployment, or delivery, or deployment. Delivery. So, why? There's a... There's been a movement sweeping through software development, obviously, over the last bunch of years for making things, for reducing the cycle time on features, for reducing the cycle time on bug fixes, for more tightly integrating various loops of things. And kind of commonly, this has been referred to as DevOps, but that encompasses more the culture and the tools. And well, this is one of the tools. Um, it's DevOps. Broadly, You're supposed to automate all the things, right? That's what DevOps yeah. is, right? Right? And broadly speaking, one of the important pieces of that that tool chain is the CI/CD pipeline that somebody uses. And a lot of people sort of toss those terms around and don't really dig into what they are. And so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about CI and CD, how they're different, why you'd want to do them, some of the popular tools. What they are. Yes, because there is a difference. And it's important. Yeah, and some people so, conflate the two, and they don't necessarily mean the same thing. Although people sometimes use them interchangeably. So to start, um, CI, the CI of CI/CD, is continuous integration. And the at its simplest, the idea is that as commits are pushed into a source code repo, because you are using a source code repo, right? The build system will bring those changes in and do whatever linting or build tests or, and you are doing build tests, right? And we'll bring all those pieces in to validate that the thing that was just committed actually compiles, isn't full of horrible errors, those kinds of things. So integration like integration tests. You have a, se a series of integration tests that you layer on top of your unit tests. This is a tool that automatically runs those tests and makes sure those tests pass as you, as you push commits to your code base. And you do have unit tests, right? Right? Um... The kind of the purpose that I see for CI and CICD is it it gets you out of the pattern of having these releases that take months or years even to get out the door, where you have these massive change sets coming in that nobody's really tested all the individual pieces because you can't really test all the individual pieces. You've been working off some crazy trunk. Um, I'm thinking about the horror stories of some of the Windows development cycles that we heard years ago now, where... It would take months for having to get stable builds out the door, and they would be building. They were releasing builds every couple of days, but it would take months to get to the point where you had something stable because you were writing a whole new thing. And the idea of continuous integration is every time that you cut a new feature, because all commits should be small, composable little pieces. That as you as you release those, hey, you test them, you understand that they work, they don't break everything else, they don't. That library refactor doesn't come in and wipe out all the other connections you do, and it's automated. You don't have to think about it. You commit code, the tests run. You get feedback on how good your code actually is from the tests. And it's it's a symbiotic relationship, right? Uh, if you have a, a, pro, a CI process in your environment, it's going to encourage those smaller commits uh, because that, that positive feedback and that feedback loop that you get from it helps developers. So I, I think it helps everybody all around when you have these kind of processes there that's automated, that's easy to use, because then it provides that feedback that encourages the much smaller change sets because it's actually quicker. And 
to that point, this will also get people out of the habit of saying, oh, what else is my working branch? Oh, I guess I'll commit the other changes that I made that I was, I, I've had checked out for three weeks that I need to go somewhere, and so I'll take it into this PR. I've got this branch open. I can get in this extra unrelated change, right? I know Jared will, will approve that for me. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I do have the habit of trying to extend a few things from time to time when they're unrelated. And this whole methodology really fits with that kind of modern, the agile, Kanban, whatever the, the current buzzword that you happen to ascribe to. Because it keeps things easy and small. And at this point, for a lot of the pure developers that I know who don't do ops work very much, who are primarily developers, they consider this table stakes. This is this is the thing that you have to have in the environment. Otherwise, a developer looks at you and says, really? You don't, you have to have these things now. And understanding the tool sets and understanding how to get them kind of going and, and built up and around things is really important. It's one of those things that developers assume that the operations folks has laid out and defined and already pre-exists. Yeah, um, you know, I guess it's almost like uh, Puppet or some other config management for sysadmins, uh, right? Like once you get spoiled with that, going to a place that doesn't have it, even though there is some some overhead to it, it just frees you from so many other things that it's like, why wouldn't you have this there? Yeah, even organizations that have literally one server, you expect them to have some kind of process to recreate it afterwards if something goes wrong and or to maintain state. And so you, yeah, having change man or configuration management for servers is now considered absolutely required. There is no conversation there. And we're getting there with, with CI. And then on to CD, the continuous, continuous delivery side of things. People make a point not to conflate continuous delivery, which is kind of the broad category, with continuous deployment, which is a subset of it. And the difference I'll get to in a minute. Um, but continuous delivery is the idea that after you've run your integration tests, every time you generate a new stable green, um, green passable build, you generate a build artifact off of that. So you generate a deployable Docker container or binary or whatever it is that you use to deploy with. Back in and my days, they would be RPMs. Or DEBs or whatever, what have you. And this goes into the system so a human... Showing my age here. Well, yeah, but this goes into the system so a human is able to then say, hey, we want to run this by QA or um, UAT or any other number of systems, load tests perhaps, to validate the build beyond just does it pass the test and go into more of the operationally is it sane before a human pushes the button and, and releases it. At the very, very end of the maturity pipeline here, and if you are very confident with what you're doing, you get into continuous deployment, which is when all the tests are green, the build system builds the artifact, pushes it out, rolls it out into, into production, and doesn't require a human to actually push a button. But that is a very advanced case. So generally speaking, people are talking about continuous delivery, not continuous deployment. And you can still have continuous delivery without deployment because I know that some places when they hear CI, CD, they're like, oh no, our app can't be automatically deployed to production after every commit. And that doesn't have to be the case. Although I, I would argue that that's a, if you can't do that, that there might be something wrong with your app, but I'm not going to say in every case that's not, not <laughs> correct. But, um, but the, you know, some people actually turn away from CI, CD because that, that, that's exactly it. They go, well, we can't deploy after every commit, so we're not going to do this. And that's not the case. Just because you build an artifact doesn't mean you actually have to deploy it. And a lot of the popular tools these days have the ability to have multiple rounds of reviewers or approvers or whatnot. So you can make sure that the QA department gets the build and a human goes and says, yes, it has passed our manual tests and our automated tests. 
and the load testing folks look at it and say, yeah, okay, we, we put it into the harness and it works and we give you a thumbs up now. And every time it moves through the pipeline, the next stage of people are automatically notified. They automatically get the piece in. And there's none of this, hey, could you go look at my PR? Or, hey, next sprint, could you? Or in the god-awful old days of you look at your Gantt chart and say, um, so who's next in this process? And you, you, you call them on the phone or send them an email or something. So this is getting that, that friction down. And especially because the changes are small and the patch notes should say, hey, we're adding you know feature X or we're revising feature X to do you know subset Y. They know what they're looking for. They can look at it. They can run it through the tests and then they can release it. This stage to me is just really simple. It's just automating the build process, producing the build artifact, and having that one component of your pipeline automated and ready. That's one less step you have to do in any sort of testing scenario that will come next. And the more you do to reduce the friction on this, again, the better quality software you will have, the easier life the ops and the devs will have, and kind of the happier everybody is. You'll, a lot of the, the wasted money that comes from idle people can, can be cut down without getting into the making people run on, on a treadmill the entire time because it's a lot of that slack time that people were just sort of waiting. It's like, oh, well, I'm waiting for the, the build to come in and it might be tomorrow, it might be today, I don't know, but I can't start on my next project without this. And so you just sort of sit. Um, and this automates the process and makes it faster and better and kind of cleaner. But very importantly, it is definitely not deployment. Right. But it, I think it also offers an audit trail, especially when combined with deployment, because then you have, you can trace oh, yeah. from source to deploy what all took place and when exactly it was deployed. You have a git commit that you relate to this build, this build artifact. Exactly. You know exactly where it is and you can trace it through your entire system. And, you know, that's some things that some uh, organizations, uh, you know, work towards and try to figure out through processes with like Jira tickets or uh, what have you. And to have it automated and just uh, at least in a log somewhere. And yeah, you may have to write some glue code to maybe present in the way you would like to see it. But the fact that it's automated is the biggest key so that humans don't have to go and manually copy a Git SHA into a ticket somewhere and say, I did this on this time. It, that's already been done for you. Another quick reminder, if you're doing logging or you're doing metrics, emit a log field that has the git SHA in it and emit a metric value that is your git SHA with a label or emit a metric with a label of your git SHA so you can see when things change. When you can see when this way you can watch an artifact roll out through production and while it takes production traffic and all of the other pieces, you will thank yourself later because it, it makes things just... Yeah, you want to um, metric how long the build took when the last successful build happened uh, same thing with your continuous integration, how long it took, when it was last successful, the status of the last build, just a couple simple statistics about that process. And that gives you a whole world of information that you can automate through your, your metrics and alerting system. I've seen a whole bunch of places use, um, I don't know, burn down whatever in Jira. So you can look at how many sprints or how many tickets we've done in the sprint and how many points we've gotten done and you can look at your velocity and whatnot. I think it's equally as important to look at things like how many tests do you have? How long do they take to build? How long are people waiting on builds? Because in some places you have to wait for your build to complete, your, your tests to complete before you can consider your, your build finished. And if that time starts ticking up, now again, you're wasting people's time as they're sitting there waiting. So is it worth it to spin up another, you know, a couple thousand dollars a month worth of instances to make the build process faster? Probably. 
But again, that's a decision that you should be, you should be using data to make that decision. So monitor and track your build pipeline, both the integration and, and the um, the integration and the delivery side so you can see where you're spending your time and why. Yeah, the really, the really unfun side of this is getting yourself into a situation where you make a one-line change that's operationally related, very simple, and you have to wait 45 minutes for the integration test to, fa to, to pass. Then more time for the build to complete. And yeah, that's not fun. And that's that extends an outage. That extends how long you're working on a page. That's that's the area you want to avoid and be able to measure so you know that you're not encountering. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier, where anything that you can uh, do to make developers' lives happy and, and easy is going to just encourage uh, more positive or better behavior. So if your test suite takes a long time to run, uh, tests probably aren't going to get written or added. Yeah, and finally, the cloud environments that we're all kind of building towards these days, because that's where most things seem to be going, really th really thrives on disposable infrastructure. It really thrives on the the idea that you th you bring up a set of instances running your artifact, or you bring you set up a Lambda function, or you set up whatever it is, and when you're done with it, you throw that set away, and a new set's been brought up with the new artifact in it, because you don't you don't keep things around forever anymore. At least you, that's not the idea for most of these the software development side of things. So CI/CD really fits hand in hand with the idea of disposable infrastructure and kind of the the modern direction of the cloud. I do find that with SOA, the the service oriented the service oriented architecture stuff, that sometimes these tests can get a little hairy because you're trying to build, especially when you're making changes to say a, a lower level library that a lot of things share. You have a lot of different things that have to be checked to make sure that the change you just made to a database handler or whatever it is is actually safe in all of the other projects that also touch that. And so that can drive your build times up and you should look at increasing resources and look at your build tools and your testing tools to make sure that everything's fine there. Well, that's why you're using a monorepo, right? It, that doesn't save you from having to test oh. all the different sub-projects. <laughs> or your build time's taking 45 minutes. So I will admit to not having had used all of the products we're about to talk about. Um, I've been a user of a bunch of them, but not as many as I really would like. But I wanted to talk through some of the kind of the popular options in the CI/CD pipeline space, especially for shops that are looking at getting started. You know, if you, assuming you don't have a CI/CD pipeline at all right now, what are you looking for? Um, and the first really popular one that I can come across was Cruise Control, which I never used. It was BSD licensed. It was BSD licensed, and seemed to be fairly fairly common, or it was, it was fairly widespread in, in the very beginning. But a tool written by Sun Microsystems called Hudson, written in Java, with an MIT software license, came onto the stage in the early 2000s, and it was extraordinarily popular. People flocked to it because it let them build a lot of their primarily Java pro projects, Maven and whatnot, out of their source control repos and have an automated process for building the jars and whatever else they were doing for deployments. And people loved it. 2011 rolls around, it is named, renamed Jenkins. Um, Oracle bought Sun and decided to trademark and commercialize and kind of generally Oracleize the... Oracleize. Yes. Oracleize it. And the fork was named Jenkins. Of course, the developers considered Hudson, at this point, the, the Oracle-controlled side of it to be the fork. And Jenkins became the kind of the default... Um, CI, the default CI/CD tool that people still generally use. 
And that fork, I think, happened in 2011. Everywhere I've been and everywhere I've messed with this, it's been Jenkins. Yep. I, I really I really love to hate Jenkins. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. Although, you know, some of the newer uh, plugins or, or modifications to Jenkins, ma- namely the, the Pipelines uh, plugin as well as uh, the Ocean Blue stuff, um, really have helped make Jenkins a little nicer, uh, especially when you have, like, true Pipelines. Have you actually set those up, Jared? I have never been in the position to set up a Jenkins install before. I, I've set up Jenkins pre-Blue Ocean. Well, I, I've set up Blue Ocean personally and played around with it, but I have not done the pipeline stuff since they've they've added those kind of features. I've set it up back uh, in, you know, in the quote-unquote old school days when you had to actually create multiple jobs and uh, trigger jobs off of each other and, and stuff like that. So <laughs> I've used the pipeline stuff, but I'm not familiar with the Blue Ocean side. It really is a is it it just brings the UI into a nicer view. Um, it actually lays out what you would consider a pipeline, so it actually shows you know. T- I columns. thought the UI was supposed to suck. Well, I mean, that's that's a feature of Jenkins, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, this one makes it suck a lot less. Um, Sorry, I love to hate Jenkins, <laughs> but yeah, so it it makes it just look a lot nicer, and and like I said, it really builds it, it the view into. Uh, what you would consider a pipeline view, where you have these columns and you can see the flow of the various build jobs that make up a singular part of the pipeline, and really get a an, a bird's eye view of your of how the pipeline is progressing. If you're not into setting up Jenkins yourself, um, there are hosted options for Jenkins, but that that quickly gets you into the kind of the hosted space. Um, there's a bunch of tools there. Circle CI is one. Travis CI is another. Um, Circle CI is, is paid only, I believe. Travis CI has a clause for being free for GitHub projects that are open source licensed. So if you are an open source project, you don't have to pay for a build server, which can be very handy for cash-strapped projects. Although GitHub's getting into that lately with their, um, is it Actions? that they're That's a beta product right now? I'm not sure. Um, GitHub and GitLab are both working on CI tools. GitLab has kind of integrated, even standalone, you can download the GitLab um, binary at the on the free level, and there's a CI/CD component to it. I've played with GitLab a little bit, and I like it enough, I guess. I mean, it's fine, but I've never actually gotten into their paid tiers, which I hear are supposed to be nicer. Yeah, so it is GitHub Actions. Um, I guess uh, GitLab was starting to... Uh to eat GitHub's lunch a little bit since, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you could just download Git, GitLab and have all the repository stuff, the the issue issues, and then have a, a really nice CI, CD part to it that's integrated. Uh, so I think GitHub had to do something. Moving on, a lot of my Windows developing friends, I don't have lots of those, but I have a number of them, have used Team City a fair amount by JetBrains. Um, so I kind of chalked this up this one being primarily a Microsoft workflow driven thing. It integrates with visual studio and GitLab and GitHub and all those things, but it seems to be favored by folks doing windows development. And I know there's a lot of them and getting modern tooling is always appreciated everywhere you are. Um, there's also, if you are deep into the AWS, the AWS ecosystem, AWS has a number of tools. There's CodeStar, which covers code pipeline and code build and code commit and co- all kinds of things. And, it ties in with the IAM roles and it ties in with the access stuff. And so you can give access to various repos hosted by Amazon. You can use IAM to control access to these repos. You can control access to S3 in and out of them. So it fits really nicely into an AWS centric 
lifestyle. If that's your thing, it's a great tool. It's not that expensive. You pay by the build minute for the build servers. You pay by the users past, I think, 10 for the for the source, source repositories. Um, and similarly, if you are an, an Atlassian shop, you're, you're heavily invested in Jira and Tempo and those things, Atlassian Bamboo is their build server or is their CICD tool. And I don't know much about it, having never used it, but if you're an Atlassian, Atla hmm. if you're an Atlassian shop, it's probably worth taking a look because it integrates with all the other things you're already using. I've used Rundeck before, and I'm trying to figure out if that was a precursor to one of these products or not. I think it is, you know, back uh, w around when Jenkins was starting to get first popular. I think Rundeck came out as well, although they they've always been focused more on the the ops side of of the house, like uh, basically a um, a remote scheduler or remote executor for sysadmin task or any kind of task in a rental machine. I'm not directly familiar with it, but I will definitely take a look at it. And then finally, if you're looking for more open source, kind of self-hosted things, Netflix had their Spinnaker project, which has been rolled out into a, a standalone kind of open source thing that I think it excels at building Docker containers and things, because that was a lot of the, the Netflix push when they were developing these tools was moving things into, into Docker. So if you're looking for that kind of workflow, that might be a good choice. Yeah, and along those same lines, I haven't used this yet, but it's something that's been up on my radar for a while. There's Drone, which is also very Docker-focused. Uh, their little tagline is basically uh, composed for CI, CD. And uh, it's a YAML format, and you can basically define uh, various jobs. And again, it's got a very heavy focus to containers. But like all things in all the spaces we've ever talked about on this podcast, it is very much worth your while to do a survey of the tools that look like they fit your needs and even some of the ones that don't seem to directly fit your needs and make sure you're not leaving things on the table. Make sure you're not leaving out an option that might really fit your use case better. Just because you're an AWS shop doesn't mean you need to use you know, CodeStar or CodePipeline or whatever. You can look into the other tools. There's lots of tools and some of them fit particular workloads better than others. Some are just plain cheaper. Yeah. So take a look. Look around, see what what exists. Um, people will know, listening to the show, that I am not a huge fan of the bespoke AWS service model where you have these very costly kind of integrated little units you can use. I much prefer the I, I much prefer the, the, the more primitive building blocks that you kind of assemble a system out of. And that's mostly because I generally work at a scale larger than it makes sense to use Kinesis or one of those things, because Kinesis charges a crazy amount of money versus just running Kafka yourself, for example. But especially in smaller startup shops, it's very tasty. It's very, very tempting to just dive into the, oh, well, I'm, I'll, I'll spend $15,000 this year on my CI pipeline and not a whole person who to run and maintain all of this as well as everything else they're doing. So there is certainly a, a use case, but please, 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 please evaluate tools. And tell us about it when you do. Finally, the the piece of this that I kind of want to end this with is how all of this really plays into the traditional ops mindset of things. The because this is an operations podcast after all. Um, a, a lot of times when people use the dreaded phrase "no ops," I think this is the kind of stuff they're referring to: reducing the manual handholding of various pieces of like the release pipeline by a person and automating it. And getting tools in place so you don't have to get, you know, that same human who's been running the build job for, you know, five years to, no, we, we can give them other more interesting, smarter work to do. 
and we can get that part of the pipeline, especially the automatable parts of the pipeline, fully automated. Yeah, because, you know, I, I guess if you can think back uh, when things were manually released, uh, there could be pain points and friction there uh, when you build a, when a developer builds a build and has a, a release ready and then they hand, throw it over to the ops and ops has to do whatever they do and instead of it taking minutes or possibly even hours, it takes days or ugh, even weeks. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been in environments, and I think everybody else here has as well, where a developer does something like they email you a tarball of the code, and they say, okay, deploy it. <laughs> and you're like, deploy what? <laughs> how, how, what? Database migrations? What? Yeah, so it's... I'm sorry, my anti-spam filter flagged your tarball. What? <laughs> but the, the world of ops has been changing for a long time, and if people are you know, head in the sand on that, well, I can't really help you. But... 10 or 15 years ago, these concepts, the, the idea of a CI/CD pipeline were radical, crazy concepts. And it was, it was, it was industry changing at the time. And now it's, again, it's table stakes. And if you want to be able to play in this space, one of the things you have to be able to understand is how do I add my job to a CI/CD pipeline? How do I get these things in? How do I know what I'm going to do? For example, having your documentation automatically built and uploaded to a CMS of some variety Sure, that that that's a reasonable job for a for a pipeline to do. Having the pipeline do things like restart Elasticsearch may not be the best choice. Yeah, the warning that I want to state is that I've definitely been in places where folks have a vast CI/CD pipeline set of tools ecosystem, and that ecosystem sort of becomes the this is the toolkit you have to automate everything, and we're all DevOpsy, so you should automate all the things. And clearly, this is the tool to do it with. And that's that's obviously a much broader topic than running unit and integration tests, than building uh, artifacts of, of deliverables, of deploying those artifacts on some sort of QA test or even production server. And... These can this can really start to become fuzzy about where some operational tasks begin and end, and where your CI/CD pipeline begins and ends. And I'm not speaking against trying to oper- uh, automate some operational tasks. There's just better tools. But there may be better tools. There are better tools. There may be different methodologies to automate some of your operational tasks rather than your CI/CD pipeline well and and also generally speaking i mean depending i'm painting with broad strokes here but your cicd pipeline may require multiple tools or is is uh, operationally kind of large and if you have to run a task across a fleet and your cicd pipeline is down it's gonna be kind of hard to do that if that whatever task you're about to run needs to be ran to get let's say for instance that cicd pipeline back up and running Whereas that's really one of my favorite things where you have your your orchestration system or your configuration management system dependent on your CI CD pipeline working, which is probably not as stable as as your underlying architecture. So when developers make interesting new fun changes and the CI CD pipeline breaks and all of a sudden you lose the ability to, to do any operational aspects. <laughs> That's a red flag. And the other thing I want to bring up is that a lot of the pure developers that I know have absolutely no interest in doing anything with the CI CD pipeline other than committing code to the repo. 
They don't want to know how the jobs are configured. They don't want to be involved with the test harnesses. They don't want to be involved with any of that stuff. They they really want to show up and say, I've, I've committed my, my code and my unit tests and my whatever else and my documentation, and the system will pick it up and handle it for me and understand that I've changed versions of Scala or I've upgraded these libraries or I'm using this this provider of whatever, you know, this provider of whatever packages, and they don't want to be involved in this. So be careful of letting developers try to also move everything else into the operation space because they often don't really understand why the tools are set up the way they're set up. And they'll argue that, oh, well, I, I know that Jenkins works. And so Jenkins can run scripts and we can run, have it run. We can, we can give Jenkins SSH access to the fleet and it can do all the things for us. And it's like, yeah, you can. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. But there, there might be better ways to do that. I don't know. That's just food for thought. Please take the time to rate this show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows you've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 77th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Duesendorf. I'm Chuck Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night.